Welcome to Midas Touch Legal AF. If it's the weekend, it is Legal AF. Ben Micellis, Michael Popak, breaking down the critical legal issues of the week in digestible ways that you could understand. Some have called this Legal AF University. We are not an accredited law school, but we do feel that we are teaching you the law, the nooks and crannies, the nuts and bolts, the Popakian, everything. Michael Popak, how are you doing this weekend? Freezing, huh? It's freezing. We're the Thomas's English muffins of law schools. We do the nooks and the crannies. Yeah, we got it. We, we're getting we're on our way to a, a, a foot of snow in Manhattan. But uh, it did not stop me from, as people know from the tweet this morning, did not stop me from heading into the office, wearing ski goggles and digging my way out to make it to my podcast studio, i.e. my office so that I could spend another Saturday night with you. Popak, you don't know this, but I have some business meetings that are scheduled this upcoming week in New York. So I may be seeing you in person, but Mm. that blizzard out there or that bomb cyclone, as it's being called, (laughs) is certainly giving me some pause. Should I come? Should I not come? Uh, I I think you should. A, you should come. B, we need to see each other for various reasons. If you're in town long enough, maybe we do a live podcast, although we still have the mask mandate going on in New York right now. But yes, come. It's going to be we're New Yorkers. This thing gets cleared out by tomorrow and we're up and running. I took a I took an Uber here uh, through the snow this morning. So don't worry about that. And before we move on, talking about sartorial things, loving the Baby Yoda shirt for those that are watching us tonight and on YouTube in the future. What is what is that all about? Well, it was a gift that was given to me from my girlfriend, Sochi. She got this for me, but It's because my nickname as a young trial lawyer was Young Jedi was what the trial lawyers, the older trial lawyers called me, which is funny because not to fully digress and we'll get into the law in a second. When I was growing up and I went to a day camp, um, they were giving out names of Star Wars characters and I didn't know really anything about Star Wars when I was six or seven years old. And they called me Yoda, very big eyes. And at the time, my ears uh, didn't really fit the size of my head. Your head grew into your ears. And so I felt very cool, though. I'm like, Yoda, you know, wise and he's the leader. And then I went home and I watched Star Wars and I saw what Yoda looked like (laughs) and I started crying. And I was like, why are they saying Yoda? They think I look like Yoda. And uh, but it's funny that it went full circle, though. And then as a trial lawyer, it was Young Jedi. On on this show, I'm Obi Obi Wan Kapopak. Obi-Wan Popopak, the Pope himself, the Popaki. And let's get into the law and let's talk about it, Popak. I mean, I think we have to be even handed when it comes to members of Congress who are, um, you know, apparently in legal jeopardy here. You know, there is a congressman out in Texas. Henry Cuellar, representing the 28th District of Texas. For those who don't know about the 28th, it covers Laredo, Mission Rio Grande City, and San Antonio. So a very kind of prominent district. And uh, Congressman Cuellar, a very powerful congressman, his uh, home was raided uh, by the FBI this past week. We don't have much information about 
what the reason for the raid is. And Henry Cuellar, he's in a contested primary against a popular progressive Democratic candidate as well. Congressman Cuellar says he's still going to be running. He says that he's innocent, although we don't know what he's really being accused of. But Popak, what do we know about this raid? And maybe you can even walk us through a little bit like when we hear about these FBI raids, the FBI's Does the FBI usually announce it? Do they just kind of show up unexpected? Tell us about that. This is our second raid since you and I have been together. In April, we talked about the dawn raid of Rudy Giuliani that was executed by the FBI on behalf of the Southern District of New York, in which they grabbed 18 personal electronic devices. Here we have, and you're right, we need to be even-handed. We have a representative that obviously is the target of an investigation being led, I presume, either by Maine Justice out of Washington or by the local U.S. Attorney's Office in Texas concerning his and maybe maybe his wife, uh, Imelda Cuellar, involvement with the country of Azerbaijan, which for geography buffs out there, and we have a lot of them on our global our global following is sits on the Caspian Sea. It was formerly part of the Soviet Union, and it is bordered by Iran, Armenia, Georgia, and Russia. And it is oil rich. Well, what else is oil rich in this story so far, Ben? Texas. So for some reason, and I don't exactly know why, um, Cuellar has a very close relationship with the business and political community of Azerbaijan, even going so far as to be the co-chair of the Congressional Azerbaijan Caucus. I don't think Cuellar is Azerbaijani, but somehow he has gotten so involved with them that he actually heads a caucus in Congress, which of course is is where lobbyists go who want to promote Azerbaijan. The problem with Azerbaijan is, is that it's on the CIA list for being a supremely corrupt uh, oligarch or oligarch um, running there and the true relationship between Cuellar and whether he, who knows what he's done that has made him the target of a criminal investigation. His wife, Imelda, has a bunch of media companies, the press has reported, that also have connectivity to Azerbaijan. And, you know, he's been known to take graduates or undergraduates at Texas AM, A&M International to Azerbaijan for a week or two. So, We're going to get to the bottom of this. He gave a 90-second tweet video that said he's got nothing to hide and he'll be totally cleared. And of course, as you noted, he's in a dogfight of a primary fight for his seat. So this is something that we will keep our eyeballs on and we will follow as things develop. And the fight for a seat, the progressive challenger, her name is Jessica Cisneros. For everybody who wants to check out her views and her policies, uh, Jessica Cisneros. And as we're talking about Congress, Popak, I'd be remiss if we didn't just quickly talk about Matt Gates and what's gone on over there uh, this week. And as many people know, uh, Joel Greenberg, who was basically Matt Gates's right hand in this sex trafficking ring of raping underage girls. Um, he pled guilty, Joe Greenberg, who was facing a life sentence. If you recall, he was the former tax collector of Seminole County in Florida. I lived in and- Seminole County for a minute and a half in the mid nineties. Really? Um, I, I was- practiced in Orlando for a short time. So this, so with respect to Joel Greenberg, 
he had pled guilty to sex trafficking. Another individual who was within that sex trafficking ring or a witness to the sex trafficking, an Orlando area sports radio host named Joe Ellicott. He's cooperating with the U.S. Justice Department's investigation into Florida Representative Matt Gates and Ellicott is pleading guilty in a separate bribery scheme, not to the sex trafficking and also to supplying people with huge amounts of Adderall. But apparently Ellicott was in the room where Joel Greenberg had reached out to Matt Gates and had told Matt Gates that um, they had raped an underage girl and that Ellicott had witnessed that. So we'll keep everybody updated on that. Back to your neck of the woods, Popak, with Sarah Palin. Um, Sarah Palin's in in the news again. Well, she's in the news, I saw, because she had COVID um, and she was out with her family spreading COVID. It's beyond wild that- Not even her family, her boyfriend, former Ranger great Ron Duguay. Right. And so she's there with her boyfriend with COVID going out to restaurants. She previously said she was never going to get vaccinated over her dead body, but apparently she doesn't care about other people's dead bodies, in which case former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman went on Fox News and applauded, applauded Sarah Palin for going out and saying that that was great that she went out with COVID. That's what everybody should be doing, going out with COVID. I mean, it's beyond parody and sick, Popak. This is why Michelle Bachman is no longer in the public eye. Comments like that. I I thought she was I I was actually surprised she was still around when you mentioned Michelle Bachman. She had so fallen off the radar. But Popak, here's the thing. What Michelle Bachman was saying there is kind of mainstream Republican views now. They really believe in spreading yeah. COVID. Like, you know, she was on Fox News. The Fox News host let her speak and had that stupid grimace on his face as she was, you know, Michelle Bachman was applauding Sarah Palin. But Popak, Sarah Palin wasn't just in New York to spread COVID. It's actually in <laughs> New York because she had a federal case. She has a lawsuit that's been going on against the New York Times for defamation for quite some time. Tell us about yeah. that case and what stage is it at? Yeah. And then I'll end it with a discussion of Ilio's restaurant, which is in my neighborhood. <laughs> and I know well, including That's where she was at, where including, she was including Meatball Wednesday, which which they're actually known for. I'm not surprised she ended up there. What I am surprised is she told a federal judge in this case, in this case, Jed Rakoff, Rakoff, who's a very well-known Southern District, New York federal judge for in his former life, a very well-respected white collar criminal defense lawyer. Um, they're at the point in her five-year-old trial against the New York Times for libel. And just to bring everybody up to speed on that case, she filed a case against the New York Times because in, in an editorial uh, piece that the New York Times ran in uh, 20, 2017, 2017, the editorial writer made a link between Sarah Palin running on her website a gun site uh, logo with the Gabby Gifford shooting that killed six people and and horribly injured Gabby Giffords in 2011. So in, six years later, I don't know exactly why I had read the piece, but the New York Times was writing an editorial that sort of made a linkage between the crosshairs mailer and that particular shooting. 
Now, everybody, yeah, because there was the shooting in 2017 that injured Congressman Scalise. Right. And so that's why they were writing about it in 2017. Okay. And then they were talking about the 2011 shooting right. of Gabby Giffords. And they were saying that one of the causes of the shooting was and it was intimating that it was yes. because of the crosshairs and Sarah Palin's no, promotional material. You got it exactly right. And the why is that important? Because in a libel or defamation case, A, it has to be false, whatever whatever's being said about somebody. But if they're a public official or have celebrity, which Sarah Palin arguably does or is or was, the in order to in order to succeed on a case of defamation, there's a heightened standard for a public official to win that kind of case. They have to prove that the person that made the defamatory statement did so with what's called actual malice, which is a term of art, which ironically comes from a case from 1964 that involved the New York, New York Times. Times. Right. New York, New York Times. Times. Sullivan. Exactly. Which is we we walk out of law school, whatever we went to law school. And that's one of the cases that's like burned in your brain. And that, and when you practice the kind of law that you and I practice that touches on First Amendment and constitutional issues, we often talk about New York Times versus Sullivan or Sullivan versus New York Times. And in that case, the Supreme Court, it hasn't been changed, it's precedent, declared that a public official cannot recover damages for defamation unless it is proven that the statement was made with actual malice, which means knowledge that the statement was false or a reckless disregard for whether it was false or true. Now, the editorial writer had already testified at a preliminary hearing in front of Judge Rakoff that he he personally did not know that that was false. He believed it was true. Therefore, in at least the, the view of the trial judge at the time, defeating actual malice. And Judge Rakoff actually dismissed the case, um, you know, three years ago. And he was reversed by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, saying that, he was wrong to credit that testimony alone and that she had the, she had the right to a day in court. Well, that day in court, including because of COVID, got pushed out to like now, like this week. So Judge Rakoff is ready with defense lawyers uh, and the plaintiff's lawyers for, for Sarah Palin and Sarah Palin to go into a live courtroom and pick a jury. Well, Sarah Palin took a rapid test and came down with COVID. She's also publicly declared that she's proudly not vaccinated. And so Judge Rakoff, in his own way, sort of snarky, said, well, I've just been informed that that the plaintiff, Miss Palin, is has COVID. And of course, she's not vaccinated. You know, he kind of gave her a little dig on that. And he, he then gave the plaintiff's lawyers and Palin a various ways to not delay the trial. He said, let's pick the jury without Miss Palin present. That if the lawyers do the picking anyway, they said no. They said, let's do it by Zoom. Let her Zoom in while we're picking the jury. And she said no. So she said no to Zoom. She said no to doing it without her, which does it, you know, happens sometimes. But she did say yes to spaghetti and meatballs at Ilios. So while she was killing time, waiting for a trial to happen that she wants, and Judge Rakoff is pissed off and tapping his foot, she's out not once, but, but the New York Post has reported twice she's gone back to Ilios. Once inside, which just to bring everybody up to speed, New York is still under an indoor vaccination requirement. You have to show a vaccine card and ID to go eat indoors. And you got to wear a mask for that portion of moving to your table or moving to the bathroom. You can eat outside. You can eat outside. And she did eat out. Apparently she did eat outside the second time. So 
crazy case, the, the fundamentals of the case and whether she wins or loses on actual malice, which a lot of journalists are watching with bated breath, especially with this Supreme Court, because who knows what they're going to do with precedent, as you and I have talked about in dozens and dozens of other cases. It's a crapshoot right now as to whether they're going to side in favor of journalists, the First Amendment, and find actual malice not found here based on testimony, or they're going to like rewrite the rules uh, and change the game in the midstream, which this Supreme Court has done throughout this term. So you and I will continue to follow. This Supreme Court is keen on overturning precedent. Of course, later in the podcast, we're going to talk about two cases, one in North Carolina, one in um, Massachusetts relating to Harvard, where uh, it's apparent that this Supreme Court is going to um, overturn any type of affirmative action or weighting diversity as a factor in admissions procedures yeah. in in college. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm going to debate about... that a little bit with you. I, I want to you, you and I may be on the same page on this. We may not be. But I, but clearly they took up the case of the of the Harvard and University of North Carolina affirmative action because this current right wing majority wants to do something about affirmative action in a way that that even as recently as 2016, which is the last decision, wasn't wasn't done to their liking. So you're right. But we'll get to that later this evening. And the Times editorial uh, writer uh, who, who who's at issue in, in the case is someone named James Bennett. Um, James Bennett's brother is Michael Bennett, a senator of Colorado, which is one of the things that Sarah Palin's team argued satisfied the actual malice standard that there is a family connection and personal animosity. Um, and Bennett also worked at the Atlantic, which had written stories that said that there was no connection or that there had been no obvious connection between Sarah Palin's post um, yeah. and uh, the shooting. So that was the evidence that the Court of Appeals relied on to overturn Rakoff dismissing the case. I agree with Rakoff. This case should be dismissed um, and should have been dismissed. But nonetheless, yeah. it goes to trial he, in February. He, we'll he made one last ruling before we leave it, Ben. He made one last ruling on, on Bennett. Bennett was was then dismissed I don't think related to this, but I'm not sure. I'll, I'll look at it and tweet about it later. But he was dismissed by the New York Times. And of course, Palin's team wanted to bring that in to the jury and let them know, oh, he's a bad guy and he got fired. But Rakoff, having heard the evidence on a motion in limine, which you and I and Karen uh, KFA and I have talked about, denied that is barring that evidence from coming in subject to any door opening. So, th so the jury's not going to learn that Bennett was ultimately fired by the New York Times as well. When you say motion eliminate for all those legal efforts, it literally it's Latin. It translates for a motion at the start is what the, the terminology actually means. And these are pretrial motions that are filed, basically saying certain evidence should be excluded. Often the case law basically says you can't unring the bell. So once someone talks about something in an opening statement, it's already out there. Um, so lots of motion eliminates are saying you can't mention this in an opening statement because maybe it's not relevant. Um, maybe it is relevant, but the prejudicial nature. Well, I'll give you is... an example. I'll give you an example of one. Um, and hopefully our microphones are working well. Sometimes our followers and listeners think we're saying motions in lemonade, which is delicious, but not the concept we're talking about. I once filed just because I know they like when we talk about our own cases. I filed um, or actually the other side in a construction case that I handled before a jury 
filed a uh, motion in limine to keep out of the jury the, the information that in a prior series of cases, not involving my client, which was a city down in Florida, that they had done similar bad stuff in building their building and had done a similar lawsuit on similar grounds. I was going to use it to argue, well, you know, this is their MO. They get behind on the contract, they overcharge the, the, the owner, and then they claim all sorts of problems that the owner created. And they've done this four times in the past. I wanted to bring that in. The judge weighed the balance of equities and prejudice and said, it, it's relevant, it's probative, but the prejudice here, the jury, will, it'll blow the jury's mind. Let them focus on the facts of your case, Mr. Popak. I said, okay, great. So I lost the motion in limine until <laughs> I decided to go the other side into maybe opening the door on that issue and allow me to bring that evidence in. So in my opening, I pointed the finger time and time again at the contractor and said, he's the bad people, bad reputation and all this other stuff. And you know, you're gonna hear from a hundred years of experts that are gonna tell you this guy's terrible. Well, he took the bait. And when he took the stand as the first witness in the case, he tried to rehabilitate himself because he thought he had taken a hit in the opening. And so in the middle of rehabilitating himself, he started telling the story of his resume. And the resume story included all the prior projects that I wanted to bring in, but his lawyer had successfully kept out. So <laughs> at a break, at you know, we all like wrote it down and we looked at each other. My team and I looked at each other and we went to the judge when the jury was dismissed for the for the lunch. And we said, Your Honor, we have a door opening issue. And the judge was on it and said, You absolutely do, Mr. Popak. The door is now open. Have at it. The motion in limine that I granted, the other side has violated it themselves. Popak sharing those war stories, as we yeah. like to call them. I agree with you, Popak. The Popakians really like to hear that. And one thought I have for the next legal AF, I'm making an executive decision that I've neither told you nor, nor have I told Jordy about. We are going to be making limited edition Popakian shirts. I'm not sure how many yet, because I've just thought of this idea right now for just no reason whatsoever. But it's either going to be 100 to 250 Popokian shirts. We're going to put them on there for a limited period of time. And all the Popokians can, when they hear those war stories, they could be wearing, maybe it's a jersey, maybe yeah. there'll be a number. We'll get into that more. You know, but after you, but the I like the idea and I'm, I'm totally in. I'm down for at least 50 of those 150. But all kidding aside, when I listen to, to other podcasts, and sometimes I do, that do sort of do what you and I do, I don't think as well. The thing that's missing and the thing that you and I bring week after week is, is you. that you and I practice law for a living. We're in courtrooms. We're in arbitrations. We've, we've argued appeals. We've handled constitutional and First Amendment issues. So we're giving it not from a journalist standpoint, not from a academic Ivy Tower standpoint, but because you and I practice it every day. We have real clients. So... I think that's one of the things that gives us a competitive advantage and that resonates with our followers and listeners. What do you think? We, I agree. We try to break it down in digestible forms. And Popak, you know who else breaks it down in digestible forms? Uh -oh. That is Blinkist. 
of course. 2022 is all about empowerment. Our key point here at Legal AF is to empower you to grow personally and professionally. And that's what Blinkist does by allowing you to discover content that will inspire you, that will motivate you, that will give you new perspectives on your lives and the world. So what Blinkist does is it takes these incredible books out there and it breaks down the key points in about 15 minutes. You could read it in writing in 15 minutes or they have an audio component that breaks down the key points of a book in 15 minutes, but it allows you to get to the essence, the crux of these books. And I don't always have the time to read a 500, 1000 page book. Um, And sometimes I want to read about the key points before reading the book. And Blinkist allows me to do both. And so on Blinkist, the two books I've read recently on Blinkist, one was the 5am club by Robin Sharma. And the other was the five second rule by Mel Robbins. And both Blinkist versions of those breaking down those key components I got the whole book. I got the whole essence of the book in those 15 minutes. So check out Blinkist. I want you to have those same experience because there's just so much knowledge out there, but we can't always spend the time reading books for, you know, 25, 30, 50, 100 hours sometimes. You know what? I, you know why I like it too? You do it in one way. You do it as it sounds like almost like a substitute for reading the entire book. And that is definitely one approach. You can get and absorb the 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 meat of the book in 15 minutes or less. I do it for that. And, you know, I before I invest in buying a 400 page or 500, 800 page novel or book, I, I'll do the Blinkist version of it. See if I'm into it. See if I'm into the subject matter, the author, the voice and all of that. And if I am, then because I invested 10 or 15 minutes in Blinkist, I go out and actually buy the book or the audio and and enjoy it that way. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our Legal AF audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Legal AF to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. It's incredible. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Legal AF. Get that 25% off and a seven-day free trial. That is Blinkist.com slash Legal AF. And so we go from New York. Now we're in the state of Alabama. And a three-judge panel um, ruled that the Republican-led state legislature's redistricting map is unconstitutional. Um, The ruling stated, quote, black voters have less opportunity than other Alabamians to elect candidates of their choice to Congress based on this current map. The judges found the planned new map for the district that includes a large amount of black voters likely violated the Voting Rights Act. Now, what's interesting, Popak, about this is that there was a huge Supreme Court ruling, which really kind of harmed in major ways the landmark Voting Rights Act. And that case was Shelby County versus Holder 
in 2013. It was a five to four decision. The right wing was the five in that decision. Um, And that related to the constitutionality of two provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. When you go into the Voting Rights Act, there's section five, which requires certain states and local governments to obtain federal preclearance before implementing changes to their voting laws. So what does preclearance mean? You'd either have to go to the DOJ or go to this federal judge panel to clear it before you could even implement it because state legislatures were having these incredibly racist maps. Well, in that 5-4 decision, um, they ruled that Section 4B, and I know we're getting in the weeds here, but Section 4B contained a coverage formula that determined which specific jurisdictions and areas would be subject to Section 5, which was the pre-clearance requirement. And so it found that Section 4B was unconstitutional and that 4B couldn't be implemented, which for all purposes destroyed section five, because if you couldn't even determine the formula over which jurisdictions would be subject to five preclearance, you can't do preclearance in the first place. So there's been lots of talk over the past years. We need to get preclearance and update Section 4B. And of course, the Republicans don't want to do that. And so now on the heels of this, though, you still have now this going to this three judge panel. And Popak, I want you to tell yeah, why is I it will. in front of three judges? Um, but this was still good news here that this three judge panel, without there being preclearance, though, said that this was a racist map that was being drawn. And this is one other quote. While black people are about 27 percent of Alabama's population, they are only represented in one of seven or 14 percent of congressional districts. That's what the ACLU noted, but also what the court adopted in its findings. So tell us more about this, Popa. So legal AFers pull close. We're going to talk about two concepts, the three judge court act. That's a new we've never done that before. And we're going to talk about the concept that Ben has touched on. That's called gerrymandering, which is vote voter map and redistricting that leads to anomalous but purposeful um, um, uh, prejudice against either parties or minorities. And that's what's happened. So where does gerrymandering come from? It's the first time you and I have talked about it. Comes from um, uh, Eldridge uh, Jerry, uh, Jerry, Eldridge Jerry, who was vice president of the United States at the time, but was governor of Massachusetts in 1812. And he created on a map a partisan district in Massachusetts in order to sideline the Federalists right? He was a Jeffersonian Republican, literally. He wanted to sideline the Federalists. And so he drew a district that ran its way through Massachusetts that looked like a salamander. And so the political cartoonists at the time uh, lit up on that. And hopefully we'll have a graphic tonight that'll show sort of this gerrymander salamander. And ever since when a political party in power here, the Alabama Um, legislature draws a map in order to cut out a group of people for being empowered, in this case, black blacks and the black uh, belt, which is is something that's referred to in Alabama itself, and to dilute their voting power by drawing it in strange ways so that you split 
neighborhoods, you split towns to reduce their power. That is referred to as gerrymandering. And what the Voting Rights Act and the Supreme Court decision in 2015, which is Shapiro versus McManus said, is that when a when there is new a new map is drawn by the legislature, there's always sort of a jaundiced eye towards that, especially when it's politics. So in this case, the Republican State House in Alabama decided to redraw the map. Of course, when they redrew it, it came out with that statistical anomaly. And anomaly is the wrong word because it was done intentionally to lower the voting power of black people. So now they're only represented, as you said, by 14 percent of the of, of the districts there. That has to go, according to the Supreme Court and the three judge court act to a generally to a three judge federal trial level court, not appeals. You and I talk a lot about three judge panels of this court of appeal or that court of appeal. This is a three judge panel of a trial level, non-appeal. And they, on a preliminary injunction motion brought, as you mentioned, by the NAACP, the Birmingham, Alabama Ministries of Churches, the ACLU, decided that that map failed under the Voting Rights Act, that it was improperly and intentionally discriminatory and gave them a requirement that they return with a map that added at least one more predominantly black district. Once that ruling from that three judge panel automatically can go to an appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. In rare circumstances, it can be it can be handled by one judge, but only if the constitutional issues in play are found to be so frivolous that it shouldn't go to the three judge panel. So almost all of these go to a three judge panel. This might be our I think it's our second time you and I've talked about a three judge trial panel overlooking Voting Rights Act things. So that decision, I'm sure, will now be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And now we're going to see what this group of of jurists is going to do with this level of gerrymandering that's so race prejudice that even Alabama federal judges found it to be violative of the Voting Rights Act. One other interesting thing to point out as we discuss these voting rights cases, uh, an individual by the name of Edward Blum, he's a former stockbroker. Um, he is, if you Google him, when you look up his Wikipedia, he's not a lawyer. He's just referred to as litigant. And he gins up all of these lawsuits to try to pursue a radical right wing agenda to bring them through Federalist Society judges and to basically create these radical legal conditions in our country. So Edward Blum was actually one of the challengers in Shelby County versus Holder, which got the the pre-clearance requirement struck down in that case. We're going to talk about Edward Blum because his group, um, Students for Fair Admission is what he calls the group, is behind these efforts to overturn affirmative action. um, And the Supreme Court has taken these cases. We're also going to talk about the fact that um, Clarence Thomas's wife, is uh, Virginia Thomas. She is on a board of a group that works with students for fair admissions to overturn affirmative action in a case that's going to be her. Yeah, she she will get there later tonight, but she's on the board of directors of a, a BS scholars group. She's on, I mean, she, she is so entangled with so many right 
wing, overly arch conservative organizations, you almost can't keep track. It's the first time really in the history of the Supreme Court that a, a spouse of a sitting justice is so involved on one side or the other of politics and involved with cases that come before that particular Supreme Court. So we're going to talk about recusal again with him because in the case that you're referring to, her group has submitted a friend of the court brief, an amicus brief in support of finding that uh, Harvard violated the U.S. Constitution, equal protection in how it does its admissions policies. But we'll get there. We will get there. But where we're going to go next is we're going to take you from Alabama to Pennsylvania, where a Republican led Pennsylvania lower court has deemed that mail in voting which is sometimes referred to as no excuse voting or no excuse mail voting. This court ruled that it is unconstitutional. What this relates to was in 2019, 2020, um, uh, the Pennsylvania state legislature passed with bipartisan support. It was actually in 2019 with bipartisan support, no excuse mail voting. This became known as Act 77. Um, but based on the big lie that's been spread by Republicans, even though this was given, uh, was supported by bipartisan support, Republicans challenged it. Um, the panel of was three Republican judges, two Democrats on the panel, and the Republicans sided with Republican challengers and ruled that no excuse mail-in voting, Act 77, was prohibited by the state's constitution, specifically Article 7 of the state's constitution. Now, when you did, I've read this 50 plus page opinion, and it is the most absurd opinion in the world of this Republican panel trying to mince words and claim that somehow Article 7 prohibits um, Act 77, which is what the thrust of their ruling is. But Article 7, Section 4 of the Pennsylvania Constitution states the following. All elections by the citizens shall be by ballot or by such other method as prescribed by law, provided that secrecy in voting be preserved. That is what Article 7, Section 4 says. But this panel, this Republican panel, I mean, to me, it's obvious. To me, it is such other methods as may be prescribed by law. Well, guess what? The legislature on a bipartisan basis passed the law that said no excuse mail voting, which has secrecy and it's sealed. And that seems to be the end of the inquiry. But this Supreme, not the, the, this lower court goes on to make this ruling that somehow it has to be in person. And that's what the Constitution really, really meant and not even giving deference to the bipartisan legislature. So we know what's going on here, Popak. I mean, it's it's completely bullshit. But I haven't interrupted you. (laughs) This doesn't go in effect. Um, Governor Wolf uh, said Tom Wolf, who's Democrat in Pennsylvania, says, quote, the administration will immediately appeal this decision to the state Supreme Court. And today's lower court ruling will have no immediate effect on mail-in voting pending a final decision on the appeal. I just note this also, Popak, which is interesting because the Pennsylvania legislature, you know, is is Republican, um, but their 
governor is a Democrat. Their attorney general, Shapiro, who Jordy's playing a one-on-one basketball game with mid-February, and he's running for governor, is a Democrat. But that also kind of goes to the gerrymandering point, though, because at the aggregate, people want in the state like Pennsylvania, Democrats to run. Yet you have Republicans who are in control of their uh, of their legislature who are also pushing these wildly fascistic lawsuits and Republican courts embracing them. The, the Republicans are lost. They don't have a compass. They don't know which way is up. They're at sea. Black as night without a sextant. They don't know what they're doing. You got they wanted bi- this law in 2019. Bi- that's my point. You got bipartisan pre-Biden uh, support for bipartisan, meaning both parties, for making it easier to vote without excuse by mail. We all do mail-in voting. I've done mail-in voting in the last 10 years, probably half the amount of time, appropriately absentee balloting for various reasons. And by the way, so is Trump, so is everybody else. I agree with you. The most interesting thing about the opinion by this intermediate appellate court not the highest court in Pennsylvania, as you mentioned, which was three Republicans and two Democrats. So this was a five judge panel and it went three to two with the Republicans ruling is even in their own opinion. They commented that the people of Pennsylvania likely want this absentee or mail in voting without excuse. And if there was a constitutional Pennsylvania constitutional amendment, it would likely pass, but that's the way it's got to go. It can't go by finding that this law is consistent with the Pennsylvania Constitution. Totally whacked. It's like the will of the people. We're going to talk about the will of the people when it comes to different things today, including when we get to the Supreme Court and uh, and death penalty later. But one thing I've noticed in the last couple of segments, both on the intricacies in which you have dove in to both Voting Rights Act, gerrymandering, and now mail-in voting and constitutional. I mean, you're normally really alert and really on it, but you seem extra focused and alert today. Why is that? (laughs) Well, I'm always focused (laughs) on my daily performance. And if you notice in 2022 in particular, it's all about feeling good and trying to improve the way I think and the way I act. And so I have this new product and this uh, podcast is sponsored by it. It's called Super Specioso. And let me kind of tell you what it is. Um, it comes from Kratom. Kratom is a super leaf that's related to the coffee plant. And it comes deep within the rainforest of Southeast Asia. Local farmers there have been using Kratom's alkaloid rich leaves for hundreds of years to reduce pain, reduce stress, and have more energy. And most importantly, feel better. And so I tried this. I said, why not? I went ahead. I ordered some. I get hooked up a little bit with some of the stuff because uh, they're partners of the podcast. But I went to the website also, and the website is called getsuperleaf.com. G-E-T-S-U-P-E-R-L-E-A-F.com. Com. And I went there, I chose Super Specioso because all of their products come with certified lab reports. And you know me by now, legal efforts. If I'm putting anything in my body, I want to know what's in it. And I want to know for sure that I am getting high quality product. You know what and I so- liked about that too, that, that certified lab part is that it makes sure that the product, which is in the kind of the coffee family, and natural is sterilized 
before it is ingested by somebody. And that's really important to me. I want to make sure that product, even though it's natural, is not contaminated in any way. And that certified lab report from the highest level of labs for this, uh, this particular sponsor is really important. So it's all natural, powerful, caffeine-free stimulant. It's great for pre-workouts as a supplement with any unwanted, unnatural ingredients. It's been shown to improve your mood. It's a much healthier way to unwind compared to some of those unhealthy vices a lot of us may be accustomed to. It's pure kratom leaf and super specioso uses only the top 1% of kratom produced in the world. And there's a 100% satisfaction or your money back guaranteed. And there are thousands of five-star reviews. Kratom is often sold out outrageous markups until now. Super Speciosa is offering our listeners 20% off all of their amazing Kratom products. Just use the code LegalAF at checkout. So go to Superleaf, S-U-P-E-R-L-E-A-F dot com slash LegalAF and use the promo code LegalAF for 20% off your entire order. That's GetSuperleaf.com slash LegalAF. Promo code LegalAF for 20% off. GetSuperleaf.com slash LegalAF. Promo code LegalAF for that 20% off. I'd be remiss, Popak, if we didn't start, if we didn't follow up on Stuart Rhodes. He's the leader of the terrorist organization referred to as the Oath Keepers. He wears a patch on his eye because he shot himself in the face. I think he was supposed to be a gun instructor also. I mean, as we talked about on the Midas Touch podcast, these GQ peers are the worst of the worst. The, the, the gun, uh, he works at a gun range and shoots himself in he, the face. He was, but- he's as good at, at gun safety as he, as he has been in political discourse. So uh, again, the, the judge here, the magistrate, again, out of Texas, I believe, um, yes. ordered pretrial detention. Explain to us again what that means, pretrial detention. Yeah. And Stuart Rhodes, why, why was he ordered back in? Right. And this is the second one in two weeks you and I have talked about. One of the 11, there's 20 total, one of the 11, I'll call them the oath breakers because they're not oath keepers of any, of any kind. One of the oath keepers, there's, there's one half of that group, including Stuart Rhodes, the leader, the founder, who have been brought up on the highest level of charge that the U.S. government, the Department of Justice is bringing related to Jan 6, which is seditious conspiracy with a 20 year up to 20 year federal count. There is another there is another charge for obstruction that the other half of the group is being tried uh, for. And the judge, the actual trial judge, separate from the magistrate, I'm going to talk about next. Uh, who's doing the procedural issues. The actual trial judge is Judge Amit Mehta in the District of Columbia Federal Court, who has already set, Ben, I'm not sure you caught this, has already set April 19th as the first Oath Keeper trial for at least half of them who don't have the seditious conspiracy count against them. He's going to go forward in April with everyone who's been charged with the obstruction charge which is also up to a 20 year. It just doesn't have that same bang for the buck that seditious conspiracy does. He said the same judge has said they're going to do roads and the group that is being charged with seditious conspiracy. They're going to do those trials 
in July and September. So, Ben, you and I are going to have to plan our vacations to make sure we're not out when Rhodes and company go to trial. So we got two sets of trials, one judge, Judge Mehta. But wherever these people were arrested and arraigned in their various home states, in this case, Texas, for uh, Rhodes, that's where you make your appearance. And that is where a magistrate judge who is not a U.S. constitutional Article Three judge, but handles and working hand in hand and assigned to a judge to handle things like discovery matters, arraignments, pretrial detention. Those are the types of things that these uh, these these non lifetime appointment magistrates uh, do. And so, you know, this this is this is now a lesson to everybody out there. If you're charged with seditious conspiracy. Okay, you're probably not going to go out on bail. You're probably going to be pre-trial detained because of the very nature of the of the indictment against you is that you organized a violent attempt to overthrow the government or to stop peaceful transfer or to hinder or delay through violent means the execution of law. You're probably not going home. And even home confinement with an ankle bracelet is not going to work. And this is now two for two. Two indicted co-conspirators up. Two have been sent back to jail to wait to await their trial. And in Rhodes's case, he'll be sitting in jail for six or seven months. Um, seditious conspiracy is not often used by the government, and it's and it's and it's hard to prove. But not when it comes to Jan six. Just so our listeners and followers have some sort of historical context, the last two times seditious conspiracy was used successfully by the government. One had to do with with uh, Sheikh Omar uh, Ab- Abel Raham, who was known as the Blind Sheikh, who was involved with a group of other people in a conspiracy to blow up federal buildings. He was not part of the World Trade Center bombing. United block. Nations. Yeah, but he was with the United Nations and other federal buildings. He was convicted. He died in jail, having been convicted with a bunch of other people in, cons- in seditious conspiracy. And something we haven't really talked about we keep saying, you know, Jan 6 is you know, an attack on the Capitol. It was there was a group in the 1970s of Puerto Rican independent activists who wanted to see Puerto Rico be independent, who stormed the Capitol and actually brought guns and fired guns in the Capitol and hit five Congress people and wounded them, didn't kill any of them, but wounded them. They were convicted of seditious conspiracy and they sat in jail until uh, President Carter commuted their sentence in 1979. So it's a powerful tool that the prosecutors don't often use. But I can't think, Ben, can you, of a better case to bring seditious conspiracy than against Oath Keeper's role in Jan 6? No, I think it's very strong. The uh, code section is 18 USC or US code section 2384, literally called seditious conspiracy popak. You gave the definition. I'll just read it one more time. If two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down or to destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent, hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States or by force to seize, take or possess any property of the United States, contrary to the authority thereof, they shall each be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. That's the statute. And you mentioned two successful 
prosecutions, but other seditious conspiracy cases as uh, have fallen apart once they've gone to trial. One of the most recent was an attempt to use seditious conspiracy in 2012 as a charge where prosecutors alleged that nine members of a Christian far right group called the Hatari militia committed a seditious conspiracy. And in that case, this group's lawyer said, They had no intent. It was just them speaking. It was this fantastical plot that never happened. What makes that different than Jan 6th is we have all of their messages about, hey, we want to overthrow the government. That's literally what they brought weapons into the Capitol. They brought weapons to do it. (laughs) And they and they actually engaged in the conduct. I mean, I, I don't have to belabor all of the things that we saw, but this is a strong, seditious conspiracy charge. And. As we've told our legal AFers, as Merrick Garland works his way up, 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 that seditious conspiracy charge to me is very obviously applies to Donald Trump. And when we learn more about what's been going on with the fake electoral slates and that these were done at the behest of Trump attorneys, Giuliani and others who coordinated these fake elector slates. We've talked in detail about these on prior legal AFs. You can go back and listen to them. But I think that seditious conspiracy charge, here's what I predict, that January 6th is going to make the case, the January 6th committee is going to make the case that Trump engaged in seditious conspiracy. It will be for the DOJ to prosecute, but the DOJ is working its way. And, and my commentary to that is I agree with everything you just said, except that last part. I don't think I don't. it's not just Merrick Garland. I don't think the U.S. attorney or the or the Department of Justice attorney general is going to bring seditious conspiracy against Donald Trump. I just don't. I think they may try to find him on other crimes. I don't think they're going to use it's so politically charged. It is so having having him already been impeached. Um, I, I just don't think it's such a time bomb for for um, to detonate. I just don't see it happening, although technically and under the elements that you've described and the evidence that's being adduced by the Jan 6 committee and, and I'm sure the Department of Justice, they're going to be able to check every box for the element. I just think that from a prosecutorial discretion standpoint, they're not going to bring that charge against Trump. That's my prediction. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be the safer prediction. But here's what the January 6th, unfortunately, but here's what the January 6th committee needs to do. As the January 6th committee begins to hold these public hearings, there will need to be a certain amount of showmanship in how this evidence is presented to the public. Um, A Midas Touch style video, the ones that we did a coup in plain sight, The Jan 6th committee is going to need to avail itself of those types of marketing strategies and tactics to make the compelling case. The facts are there. The evidence is there. But the Jan 6th committee is going to need to lay it out. So there is a public groundswell of we need to hold Trump and these seditionists and terrorists accountable. You're you're right. And for 50 percent of and for 50 percent of the country. Uh, the country, Jamie Raskin's powerful PowerPoint presentation will be must watch TV and will leave you and I and our followers with nothing left but the conclusion that Trump was a seditious conspirator. But the rest of the country is not going to feel that way. 
And so the other half of the country is not going to feel that way. So um, it's going to be powerful. And uh, there's going to be no doubt. I mean, I know from just the little dribs and drabs that Jamie Raskin and Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney and others on morning on morning news, morning news shows, uh, Sunday morning news shows have come out with. I, I, I'm sure it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen, even Watergate, because Watergate, you know, it was a different time. It was the 70s and it didn't have the ability to to um, to put up trial graphics and and visuals and video clips the way this one will. But um, I just don't think it's going to come down to Merrick Garland, Department of Justice, indicting Trump for that. He'll go down, hopefully, for other things that we're going to talk about next. But but I don't think he goes down for seditious conspiracy, conspiracy our, although work, he should. Working our way from Alabama to Pennsylvania to New York. Um, although we made a little pit stop there in, in Washington, D.C., if you will, um, where Judge Meta was going to be hearing the seditious conspiracy case. Now we head to New York. What's going on with um, this? We've talked about it before. You know, Trump uh, filed this frivolous lawsuit. I mean, it's absurdly frivolous against Tish James. I'm not even sure what the cause of action is, but just saying that he was mean to him. She was mean to him. She, you know, is pursuing a witch hunt against him, all the standard Trump bullshits and that somehow she should be restrained and prevented from um, engaging in the civil lawsuit against him and from co uh, cooperating with the Manhattan DA's investigation um, and criminal investigation into the Trump organization. But Tish James filed. Uh, in court, uh, motions to dismiss this, saying it's completely frivolous. Popak, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. It, this is just something that that we're going to watch. We talked about that for three years. This probe, led by Letitia James's New York Attorney General office, has been ongoing since 2019, and it really was the the fuse was lit. Ben, if you remember, by Michael Cohen's federal congressional testimony in, in which in part of it, he basically said that the organization commits loan fraud, <clears throat> pardon me, by inflating the valuation of its real estate properties and other assets uh, when they're when they're borrowing money and they need to show high balance sheet and deflating them when they want to pay taxes. And so Letitia James's office heard that and launched her probe. So for three years, Trump and the family had no problem with Tish James's jurisdiction or authority to conduct this until three weeks ago when she tried to subpoena Donald Trump himself and Don Jr. and Ivanka to um, to come in and through subpoena and testimony cooperate with the uh, investigation, or if they're not gonna cooperate, be ordered to by a judge. So we talked about two podcasts ago that her office filed, she filed 140 pages of a petition with a New York State Supreme Court judge in which she basically laid out the three years of her evidence that she has in 10 different categories of crimes that the Trump family led by Donald Trump have committed. And we talked about the reason why she did that, because she's tired of people saying, you don't have anything. She has plenty. She's gone through 1 million pages of documents. She's had dozens of witnesses, including current and former Trump employees who have testified. She's indicted. Well, she hasn't indicted. 
the parallel investigation by the Manhattan DA's office has indicted two of the Trump organization and the organization itself has been criminally indicted. So let, let, let's not say she hasn't done anything or she's been asleep at the switch. Now, Trump, for a really a press release purpose, filed in the Northern District of New York, which is Albany, a federal court in upstate New York. He is filed with his lawyer of choice, this four-person law firm out of New Jersey, who, by the way, I went and checked, lists a New York address for their office, and it's inside of like a WeWork or a Regis. So they have a WeWork space. She files the lawsuit, and he says, he, she's been mean to me. Tish James been mean to me. She's biased. She ran on a platform that she was going to bring me down. She's brought me down before with Trump charities and other things, and she should be recused or disqualified, and the investigation stopped in its tracks. She filed a motion to dismiss that lawsuit on the grounds that the court doesn't have jurisdiction to do that. There's no good cause for that. There's no statute that allows for that, and that her her prosecution should is 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 continuing unfettered. There's no injunction in place. The federal judge that case that case was filed by Trump in December. We're almost two months later. The judge didn't file, didn't order an injunction, didn't say to her office remove the attorney general for the state of New York and have somebody else do it. This is all BS. And so, but she she can't leave it out there either. So her office filed a motion to dismiss and we'll follow, uh, we'll follow what happens next. There'll be a hearing, I'm sure, in the next 60 days that you and I will report on. Popak, tell us, uh, I mean, you seem incredibly busy right now as well, but you are somehow managing to do the legal AFs. You're digging deep into- Two, two go- legal AFs. Two legal AFs. We should give a shout out to Karen Friedman Agnifilo, as you like to say <laughs> on the intro, Popa, KFA, Cy Vance's number two at the Manhattan DA office. We are so lucky to have her as a co-host with you on the midweek legal AFs on Wednesday. But Popak, how are you managing all of this together? You're a very organized guy, but still, I, this is a I, lot. I am, but I can't do it the old school way. I've got to use I've got to use technology. And one of the great ways is smith.ai or smithai. Clients demand an instant response. I mean, I'm on the go. As you know, I travel, as our followers and listeners know. But now more than ever, I'm I'm spread more thin than I ever was at any point in my career. I give that as a compliment to you for getting me involved with podcasting and Midas Touch and the Midas Mighty. If you're if you're losing leads or clients or visitors to your website or you're missing calls, God forbid, that can grow your business, you need to delegate those frontline conversations to the best virtual receptionist service around Smith AI. Smith AI provides businesses with award-winning virtual receptionists. So they're not robots. They're real live people. They're bilingual, Spanish and English who handle your calls, your chats and text to unlock business at a fraction of the cost of hiring a a person to sit at a desk the old school way. So, you know, listen, it's not just about them sitting and saying, well, Mr. Popak and Mr. Micellis aren't in. They'll call you right back. It goes way beyond that call back and outreach. This receptionist that is assigned to, you know, who works for your account, uh, they can bring bigger value than that. They can, they can do, um, 
outreach campaigns that receptionists don't normally do. They use software that can interact with your software, right? Smith AI integrates with all software. And if you're in the legal world, some of our followers and listeners are, and you use Clio or Lawmatics or my case, Practice Panther, this will integrate with all of that seamlessly. So um, look, since 2015, this company, Smith AI, has combined um, has combined uh, the best receptionists across North America with AI technology for that superior business communications and customer engagement. And they've helped thousands of small businesses and firms across the wide range of industries, including law firms like yours and mine, home service professionals, marketing agencies, and other ser- service-based businesses. And they're ready to help your business too. What do you think about all that, Ben? I think that's great. Where can they find it, Popak? Well, our list, that's, I'm glad you asked that. Plans start at just $240 a month, and you can try it today and see for yourself. Our listeners will save $100 when they sign up using our promo code, LegalAF, no shock there, L-E-G-A-L-A-F, at smith.ai. That's smith.ai. And you should go to that website. You can read their five-star reviews. And be sure to use our our code, Legal, L-E-G-A-L-A-F, to save $100 on sign-up. Don't let another day go by Try Smith AI. Popak, your ad reads are Popakian. They are incredible. They're unique. Um, <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're very good, Popak. Um, but definitely all the legal AFers, make sure you do check out that midweek episode. Make sure you subscribe as well to this legal AF podcast so you can get all the updates and all the breaking news podcasts that'll be sent to you. Subscribe on the YouTube. We have a lot to talk about still. So don't you worry. There's a lot of law left in this legal AF time. (laughs) I want to be a little, maybe a little (laughs) after halftime, but I want to talk about uh, the Supreme Court's decision this week to take two cases involving what's commonly referred to as affirmative action or just the role of race in the college admissions process. So in a very brief order, the justices have agreed to take up two cases that would potentially overrule a landmark 2003 decision, Grutter versus Bollinger. Um, these cases are students versus fair admissions versus president and fellows of Harvard College and students for fair admissions versus University of North Carolina. You'll, it's not a coincidence that these are both brought by the group called Students for Fair Admissions. This is a AstroTurf group. It is a group that's created by a radical right neoconservative, as he likes to refer to himself as, but AstroTurf meaning not grassroots, fake. Yeah, just yeah, exactly. Um, His name is Edward Blum. As we talked about, he was the one who overturned pre-clearance in voting rights um, to really delve into this. And, And by the way, the case that I had just mentioned, the Grutter versus Bollinger case, that involved the use of race as 
one of a number of factors in admissions in the University of Michigan Law School. But let me rewind just a little bit and maybe just talk about some of the key cases in this affirmative action jurisprudence. And so going back to 1978, the first case that's really uh, that the Supreme Court really ruled on in a meaningful way in affirmative action is Regents of the University of California versus Bach. Um, I think it's and- back. I think it's backy. Versus Baki, Um, the Supreme Court ruled in that case that a racial quota system itself that was used by a university did, in fact, violate the Civil Rights Act and that Mr. Baki should be admitted. Um, But what it did also say, though, in the opinion for the majority is that the state, though, did have a legitimate interest in considering the race of applicants. Um, and that a diverse student body could provide a compelling educational benefits to the school. And that case established the court's position on affirmative action, really up until Grutter versus Bullinger. One other important point in the Regents versus University versus Baki case, uh, it established that the university, a state university, would have to meet the standard of judicial review known as strict scrutiny. And so I'm unpacking a lot of law right here, but when a law, when a court finds that a law infringes on a fundamental constitutional right, it applies a strict scrutiny standard to hold that the law or policy would be valid if the government can demonstrate in court that the law or regulation is necessary to achieve a compelling state interest. And the government must also demonstrate that the law is narrowly tailored to achieve the compelling purpose and to use the least restrictive means to achieve that purpose. So breaking all of that down, what it, what it really means is that if it if an area of law or a policy could potentially restrict a major constitutional right, the Supreme Court or courts in general are going to look extra, extra, extra close that it's really being done in a way that is not going to, you know, really infringe on that right in any meaningful, you know, significant way, and that the right kind of will will hold up in general. So strict scrutiny would be what ultimately is applied there. So you then go to this 2003 case in Bruder versus Bollinger. That's when Sandra Day O'Connor was still on the bench. And there's interesting dicta because there they upheld the policy of University of Michigan to allow other race factors as one of a myriad of factors to be considered Um, And so it allowed University of Michigan's policy, but in kind of dicta, Sandra Day O'Connor said in the next 10 or 20 years, I'm not sure we're going to need to even have this policy, which a lot of right wing people have latched on to that language. And it was wrong, by the way, you know, very wrong, completely wrong. (laughs) But that said that basically time's up. We don't need to, you know, we don't need to do anything. And then finally, there was a 2016 more recent case 
that tried to challenge affirmative action in the University of Texas. It was an interesting case because Elena Kagan at that point was appointed by Obama, but she had handled affirmative action cases. So she had to recuse herself the way Clarence Thomas should recuse herself. Right. Kagan well, actually did recuse herself. Well, that's a that's an interesting case for two reasons. And we're, uh, before you leave, I know you're going to talk. I was about going to say it. also that yeah. Justice Scalia had died. Died. It was so, a four to three. There was only seven people that heard the case. Kagan, having been a solicitor general, having recused herself and Scalia having died and not been replaced. Cases still get heard when people die. If you have if you have a quorum, which is not hard to have when you have nine people. So this was this was a four to three, which is very rare, but four to three, which held which upheld the University of Texas right to use race based uh, issues in selecting their class. It was brought by a white woman who was twice rejected from the University of Texas. And her position was with her credentials. If she was a minority, she would have gotten in. So because of the strange positioning of the court there, by a four to three decision uh, in a majority opinion authored by Justice Kennedy and joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer and Sotomayor, um, the majority upheld the lower court and upheld Texas's policy. But it should be noted, right, that you had Clarence Thomas there, you had Alito and you had Roberts. Um, who were uh, dissenting. And now you add to that that you've got Kavanaugh, um, you've got Amy Coney Barrett, Gorsuch. Uh, and you've got Gorsuch. So you've got, there's your six. So yeah. I think the writing's on the wall, Popak, but talk about those cases and the writing's on the wall, meaning that affirmative action as we know it and any race-based considerations are, go- yeah. are not going to be allowed. Affirmative action in higher education is a hot button issue for a long, long time. Uh, it's personal to me because I come from an ethnic group that had been historically discriminated against at the Ivy Leagues forever. Um, Ivy Leagues did not allow in the 30s and 40s and 50s even many Jewish Americans to be admitted <clears throat> on purpose. They just excluded them. <clears throat> Pardon me, which, which then led to Jewish Americans founding their own universities, some of their own universities to compete. Eventually that got changed. Asian Americans, or as you said, this guy Blum using Asian Americans as a proxy to defeat affirmative, uh, affirmative, edu- affirmative uh, action, are claiming that with their board scores and their su- academic success and their, their bios, they should be let in into the class and they're being excluded by Harvard and Carolina and other universities at large numbers. And look, you know, let's just talk, let's just talk through this. If a school was only taking and only cared about in building and cultivating a student body who had the highest board scores and, and other boxes that were checked, you'd have a, you could have a school that was filled with nothing but Asian Americans, nothing but Jewish Americans, nothing but fill in the blank Americans. Is that what you want higher education to be? Or do you want as a fundamental, and this is what a society has to, has to question and has to struggle with as part of its moral precepts, do you want higher education to be a diverse environment? Because that's also part of the education process. I personally, 
wanted to go to a university where I was surrounded by people from different countries, different worlds, different life experiences, socioeconomic backgrounds, um, and the and 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 disadvantaged backgrounds and advantaged backgrounds both, because that made me a better human being and a better scholar and a better now lawyer. I'm sure you feel the same way. There are schools that are parochial that you can go to if all you want to be with is other fill in the blanks. I agree now, with you, Pope. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So in the so in the 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 case that's at bar. To answer your question that you're begging when you gave the description of the case law, what, is ha what has changed since 2016 in this country that would change the law of affirmative action? Nothing, absolutely nothing. The only thing that's changed is that the Republicans got a president and two presidents who were, who were able to put on more conservative justices, more right-wing justices to re-examine the precedent around affirmative action. You know Clarence Thomas, because he said it out loud, it's not quiet, wants to eliminate affirmative action in, in higher education. I would like them to astral project what they think colleges and universities will look like if, if admissions offices can't focus on things other than the highest board score and highest GPA in selecting their class. I do not want to live in that world. I'm hoping that some aspect of affirmative action is preserved. And the worst part of this current debate, Ben, I'm sure you caught this, is that they are using the fact that in the same week that the US Supreme Court elected to take up the case of affirmative action, signaling that they're going to make a change in that in that area, obviously. It's the same week that our president announced that to fill the opening, that you and I are going to spend the entire back part of the pod tonight talking about for, for, for Justice Breyer retiring. He's already announced, drawing the line in the sand, that it will be a black woman, the first on the Supreme Court in 230 plus years. They're saying, aha, another example of affirmative action, not only suggesting implicitly that the candidate that he'll select is not as qualified as somebody who wasn't black, which is crazy. They actually said it out loud. You have a, you have somebody at a Georgetown, hopefully he'll be fired, but he's a professor at Georgetown running one of their institutes who came out and said straight out that whoever he picks among the candidates, and we'll talk about each of the leading candidates, is inferior to other candidates, and they're being the beneficiary of affirmative action. Of course, now all the Republicans have lit on that. Isn't that disgusting, Ben? Yeah, you know, and really in the same week as Justice Stephen Breyer announcing his retirement, as you say, you know, and it's not a coincidence. The, the Supreme Court, that was not a surprise to the Supreme Court. I'm sure a week before, or two weeks before, Stephen Breyer had told his colleagues that this was something that he was going to do. And so the insidious nature of them taking up that case at that timing should be viewed in the context, yeah. Popak. And You're so you good. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's such a good and probably true observation. And, yeah. and a really uh, unfortunate one. And speaking of kind of just unfortunate and ghoulish decisions that are coming from this current Supreme Court, their most recent one on the uh, death penalty. Um, uh, the death penalty case law arises out of the Eighth Amendment. Uh, the Eighth Amendment states, quote, 
excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. So the body of case law that analyzes death penalty and the methods for death penalty are always kind of the cruel and unusual punishment uh, style cases. In 2002, the Supreme Court held in a decision called Atkins versus Virginia that, quote, death is not a suitable punishment for someone with an intellectual disability. But in a 2021 decision, an individual in a case Dunn versus Reeves, the Supreme Court voted along its party lines um, to prevent Reeves, who was shown to have um, certain uh, educational disabilities. Um, they allowed his execution to go forward. Now, this most recent uh, decision that was handed down, it also involving the same individual Reeves, Ham v. Reeves involves uh, the requirements and the timing for an individual to be able to select the form of death that will be administered to them or how the form of execution that will be administered to them. One of the issues is that with lethal injection, which was the three drug combination, um, one of the drugs, the, the initial drug that's injected, which is the anesthetic, which is supposed to prevent the inmate from feeling the effects of the drugs, it's been banned in the European Union. So the most important and, of the three, if, you're, if you don't want it to be cruel and unusual. Exactly. So that's been banned in the European Union. The European Union forbids companies from exporting the drug. So there's not a significant supply of that drug. And so other drugs were being used, which were not effective. And so many have, and this is what Sotomayor wrote in a 2015 uh, opinion, that these new unreliable execution drugs leave death row inmates, quote, exposed to what may well be the chemical equivalent of being burned at the stake. It's the words of Justice Sotomayor. So in this new decision that was handed down, Reeves, who suffers from educational disability, it's not a disputed fact that he does. One of the things the courts offer individuals now because of the shortage of the anesthetic is to choose their execution method. But to do that, they have to read the forms. And so one of the things that Reeves was saying is I'm not really competent to read the forms and to even adequately make the decision about how I can be executed. And basically you could break it down a little deeper, the Supreme Court, and I'm giving you more layman's term, the Supreme Court's too bad, too sad. You know, if you don't understand the documents, we're gonna execute you, the state's gonna execute you, however the state's gonna do it. Yeah, this one is so troubling for so many reasons, not with, including Sotomayor's very eloquent, but scary description of what of being put to death in this way uh, means and let me let me start off. We're back in Alabama for all the wrong reasons with this case by saying Mr. Reeves has already been executed by lethal injection. So let's start the discussion in this segment with the recognition that his attempt to die by another less painful means, in this case nitro, uh, nitrogen hypoxia, which is asphyxiation, which sounds also terrible but apparently is a more painless way to die. His request that, that he be allowed to do that 
which is on the approved list in Alabama as an alternative to lethal injection, was denied him by Alabama because he didn't fill out the form 30 days before the scheduled execution, three and a half years ago. And Alabama, because it's Alabama, decided that even though he was late and had decided, and who cares when he decided that he wanted to die a certain way, as long as it's on the approved list, who cares that he missed the fine print because he's intellectually disabled and wasn't accommodated through the ADA, through the Americans with Disabilities Act properly, because it's at, it's written on the 11th grade level. And the evidence was that he read at the second grade level. Who cares? The guy is going to be put to death. I want to make sure everybody's clear about this case. There was no argument that he didn't commit the murder. There was no argument when he was 18. There was no argument that he was going to be put to death. The only issue before the U.S. Supreme Court this time around was whether they were going to stop his execution with a midnight phone call to the governor, if you will, so that he could be he could be put to death by his chosen method already on the Alabama list. And the too bad, too sad comment is so frightening because you had five justices, even even Amy Coney Barrett couldn't side with her conservative right wing brethren. She switched over and sided with the three liberals. Even she couldn't do it as as uh, on this panel. But they said, yeah, I mean, it is a less painful way to die. But he missed the 30-day mark. He didn't fill out the form. He didn't check the box. So let's kill him the old-fashioned way with, with, with drugs that don't really work properly. Who cares? This is how sick this Supreme Court has gotten and how sick Alabama has gotten that, they're, that they felt like they had to protect and preserve their policy of the form within the 30-day period rather than killing the guy in a way that wasn't cruel and unusual. It's just a sick result. But but you started it right. I want to make sure everybody, because we, we haven't talked about the death penalty, I don't think, in 43 episodes. We maybe talked we about it like maybe in the earlier on it once. Yeah. We touched on it maybe once. Maybe I think you're right about that. So as a reminder, it is not, even though we use the term in layman sense, it is not cruel and unusual punishment under the analysis of the Supreme Court dating back hundreds of years. It is not cruel and unusual punishment to use a death penalty to punish somebody for a capital crime. There's exceptions to that when it is found to be cruel and unusual. You touched on it. The problem is Reeves didn't apparently reach the level of intellectual disability or intellectual development disorder, IDD, in order for the trial court to have found that it would have been cruel and unusual to apply it to him. I guess second grade level at 40 is not enough to find that you're you have mental incapacity and so we shouldn't put you to death and minors are generally not subject if they committed the crime under the age of 18 reeves failed that test too he committed his murder when he was 18 so the only issue was whether it, can we let him have his choice of death if he missed the 30-day mark that's how sick it has been no there's no doubt about it and um, it's just so interesting too. I mean, like the United States is in a group of countries that still have the death penalty that includes like Iran and Saudi Arabia. And, you know, it's pretty much banned in all of Europe. I mean, yeah. I think Belarus may still have it. I think there's but, two countries but, in the world. I think we're the only civilized democracy that still uses execution 
as a method of um, of punishment for a crime. And if you want to think through like how the Supreme Court reaches conclusions that have no logic, yet they're still considered the Supreme Court, the case, the holding in a case in 2015 called Glossop versus Gross um, was one of several Supreme Court decisions that confronted the shortage of reliable anesthetics in executions. And this is what um, what was written in Justice Alito's opinion, quote, because it is settled that capital punishment is constitutional, it necessarily follows that there must be a constitutional means of carrying it out. Such a non sequitur of a sentence because we, the Supreme Court, are pronouncing that it is not cruel and unusual punishment then there must be in science or some other means uh, a way to execute people in a way that's not cruel and, unpush- cruel and unusual. Well, it's circular, it's so. circular logic. It makes right. no sense. And that's right. what, uh, you know, that's what is hoisting up this case law is statements like that. And so we'll keep an eye on that case. And look, I, I'll tell you directly where I stand legal efforts. I am against the death penalty, period. And I'm against the death penalty because I know that our justice system, um, for better or worse, is a human system. And that the decisions of when to use uh, the death penalty are often very political decisions. Um, there's no, you know, I do think that there are clearly certain crimes that I think, wow. In that situation, that person committed the most dastardly act. I think that person deserves to die. I feel it. I feel it. That's how I feel. But then I also know it is a political system. And so for every time that situation takes place, there are other times where it's being used as a bargaining chip to coerce plea agreements. It's being used to send messages that are racial. It's being used against innocent people. And I can't support a system even where someone deserves to die, gets away with it, where people who don't deserve to die are being killed. That's you you have opinion. to. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you for very similar reasons. Here's how I put it. In order for you to accept the death penalty in society, you also have to accept and hold in your mind this other concept that there, is, there are innocent people that are put to death in the United States. There just are. The Innocence Project proves that. Other DNA-based projects prove that. So if you're if you're okay that a group, one or more people who are innocent are put to death, then you could be okay with the death penalty. Here's how I put it. The judicial process is a very gray process. I don't want a black and white ending to a gray process because if we're wrong, I can't I can't recover the person that we've that we have killed. And so for all the reasons that you said, because of racial disparity, because of um, inappropriate allocation of judicial resources and lawyer resources, because defense lawyers at the state and federal level have hundreds and hundreds of files and can't devote the resources or don't have the resources to devote, to exonerate their clients, to track down leads, to do testing, to get expert witnesses. I can't have and I can't abide by having the state, the government, kill, murder, 
a person, no matter how heinous the crime is. That doesn't mean that if it happened to me and my family, would I want to personally do that myself? Maybe, probably, but I don't want the state doing it coming out of that great judicial process. We have a lot more to discuss on Legal AF. We're going to talk about Jan 6 updates, updates, updates. We've got updates on Jan 6. And of course, we're going to talk about the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer and the implications. Is he retiring? He is retiring. And we're going to talk about who may be the individuals who will be replacing him or the individual who's replacing him, but who's on the short list, who's not on the short list. Stay tuned for more. But first, I want to talk about Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens, you've seen me drinking it this whole episode. So the proof is in the green, okay, that I like it. Maybe that's a new slogan that we'll see. The proof is in the green. I, you know, I, I like that one. But before Athletic Greens... I was taking all these vitamins and gummies. Yes, Popak, I took gummies and I would try to basically give myself what I thought I needed in the day to give myself the energy and make myself feel good, but it was not working. But with AG1, all I do is take one scoop of the green powder. I put it in this cup. I shake it up. I put water in it and it contains 75 minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in my and your diet supports energy and focus and aids with gut health and digestion and supports a healthy immune system, effectively replacing multiple products or pills with one healthy, delicious drink. As the research changes, so does AG1. While most nutritional products that come to the market never evolve, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve AG1 based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade and counting. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habits on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while keeping it tasting good. So join that movement of athletes, life leads, moms, dads, rookies, first timers, and everyone in between taking ownership of their daily health and focusing on the nutritional products they really need in the simplest manner possible. That's essential nutrition. What I think of uh, with AG1 in the winter, and people saw me shoveling snow earlier today, vitamin D deficiency. Most of the population is vitamin D deficient. And uh, adding it to your daily routine is a great way to support vitamin D production during colder months. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D because you're a legal AFer and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF today. Yep. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash 
Legal AF, take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Updates on Jan 6th. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco says in an interview this week that the DOJ is investigating those fake elector slates that were supporting Trump in the 2020 presidential election. We've talked about this on prior legal AFs. All these GQPers, these radical right extremists who are supporting the terrorist attack on the Capitol building. They created these literally forged documents. We talked about how the Michigan Secretary of State had made a referral to the DOJ. Other states have followed. Seven states in total are involved in this. And then not only do we have the DOJ investigating, but then we have the January 6th is now subpoenaing people whose names appeared on these fake elector slates, individuals who were involved in the fake elector slates. And so these are people like you know, GOP chairpersons in Arizona of the Republican Party and secretaries of states of the Republican parties and just all these GQPers who are involved. And Benny Thompson, who is one of the co-chairs of the panel, says, we believe the individuals we have subpoenaed have information about how these so-called alternate electors met and who was behind the scheme. We encourage them to cooperate with the select committee's investigation to get answers about January 6th for the American people and help ensure nothing like that day ever happens again. We will keep you updated on those investigations. We learn also with the January 6th committee, Popak, Bill Barr has apparently been speaking to the January 6th committee. We'll see what he's you know what told I like them, about he- that. You know what I like about those two stories you just told? It, it is a response and a retort to all those people in the Twitterverse who say, Garland's not doing enough. We haven't heard about it. It hasn't leaked. It must have leaked. Leaks. There, there would be leaks. We would know about these things. No, you wouldn't. Barr gave an informal uh, statement or has been talking and cooperating with the witnesses. Probably not under oath. That's why it was referred to as informal. Lisa Monaco opens up an investigation. I'm sure it's been ongoing. Not And, and I, I watched her on, I think it was CBS um, Face the Nation. It wasn't just it wasn't just that she's going to go after the fake electors. It's it's that she's going to follow the conspiracy wherever it leads into the highest levels. I, say what you want about Merrick Garland, but they are running a not leaky tight ship about their investigations at every level. You and I report on what we can based on what we what we read, what we learn about, what 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 other people are exploring investigatively. But that's like ten percent or less of what the DOJ and each individual U.S. attorney's office is, is doing. And I'm glad about that. So everybody just be patient. We're starting to get little bits and pieces of things that are coming out about investigations. We'll know more when we see indictments. And a federal judge in California is uh, indeed ramping up pressure on John Eastman. Eastman was a university professor. He's no longer there. He was no, at a dean of the law school. Chapman University, which is right here in uh, in, in California. Um, judge Carter is a judge in the Central District. He's in the Orange County Federal Courthouse. You I've know him? Be- I yeah, know I was going to ask Carter. you about it. Well, tell me about him. What's he like? No, no nonsense. He starts his court really early. Sometimes like he'll some if, if, if he, you know, is is pushing a case through, he'll have you show up at 7 a.m. in the morning. 
Um, he is all about also like believing in rehabbing um, uh, like prisoners and, and people who want a second chance and talks about like removing their tattoos. And he tries to spend a lot of times he cares about our justice system. I, I go back and read his background. I believe he's a military vet as well. Um, but just a no nonsense judge, incredibly well respected, but is not the least judge you want to try any bullshit about whatsoever. Um, and so uh, Judge Carter, he's already rejected Eastman's claim. Eastman has like 19,000 documents in his or emails in his Chapman University email account. Judge Carter's kind of cutting through all of Eastman's bullshit attorney client privilege claims. Eastman's like, I was Trump's attorney on Jan 6th. So you can't get my emails because everything I've done is in furtherance of my representation. And a crime. It wasn't even out there. It would, you know, we've <laughs> talked about attorney client privilege, the crime fraud exception um, as one of the exceptions against turning over these documents. But the quick and short of what's happening here is like Judge Carter's like, start turning them over now. First tranche of documents, go. Next tranche of documents, go. He set out a tight schedule so Eastman is not wiggling his way out of this. And those documents are going to go before the January 6th committee. And Judge Carter said in his order a lot of very positive things about the work of the January 6th committee. And when you know Judge Carter, he's a true you know, rule of, you know, law and order type of person in the truest sense of what law and order means, not January 6th. And there's an example of documents that will not only go, these emails not only go to Jan 6th, but it will be made available to the Department of Justice that the Department of Justice didn't have to do a darn thing to go after. So they're the beneficiary and they're and they're drafting like a good bicyclist, like a good Peloton. They're drafting behind the Jan 6 committee and the Jan 6 committee is throwing the documents over and Department of Justice is saying, thank you very much. Didn't have to subpoena, didn't have to go through a criminal process, didn't have to go through a judge. You got it in your process, but we'll use them. Judge Carter was appointed by President Clinton. He, in fact, served in Vietnam War, where he fought of the, at the Battle of Kisan, receiving a Bronze Star for Valor in 1968, and was medically discharged as a first lieutenant after receiving a Purple Heart. His background also as an assistant district attorney with the Orange County District Attorney's Office in 1972. He became a senior district attorney, deputy district attorney in the office's homicide division, a trial lawyer, exactly the, yeah, the exactly the type of person you'd want. But speaking of appointments, Popak, what all the legal efforts have been waiting for, just as Stephen Breyer announces his retirement, there was a press conference with him and Biden, all the radical right extremists tried to like pull a clip out that Biden said, like, I'm not going to take any questions at all. But it was, he said, in the presence of Justice Breyer, I don't think that I should be answering those questions directly in front of him. I want to respect his retirement announcement. Um, but tell us who are the yeah. likely candidates and how big and important is this, Popeye? Yeah, and we'll back up a little bit about procedure because that's come up as well. And just as you had an announcement about special edition Popakian t-shirts, I guess, that we're going to be printing, I have an announcement. We're Because we only have, you know, we have a limited period of time for you and I to talk about this. Karen, KFA and I, all we're going to talk about on Wednesday's podcast is Breyer, his legacy, and the future pick. So tune in on Wednesday, 8 p.m. for 
KFA Popak talking about this in even more detail. But let's do our special Ben Popak spin on it. Let's start with what's going on. Breyer announced he's going to stay in his seat until the end of this term, which is just before the summer break. Some people commented, oh, crap, he needs to leave his chair for the confirmation process to start. We got to do this before the midterms. No, he doesn't. The confirmation process will start really quickly. Uh, Biden has already said that by the, I think, is it Ben, is it middle of February? He's going to have his nominee up and running. I think that's yeah, right. Expe they're, they're moving yeah. expeditiously. Mid-February. Now, count. Count on your hands and on your toes. 27 days. How many days was it for Amy Coney Barrett? 37? I, I think they, I think she was announced, though, after like four days. All right. But I mean, 37 days to confirmation. We're going to do it faster. But with it before middle of March, well before the midterms, well before we lose control, well before... Don't say that, Pope McConnell. Don't say, hey, hey, I got to jump you there. No, no, no. Well, we're you don't know what I'm, You can't jump not, me yet. You can't jump not, me yet. You said way you, before. We're not losing control. You, you, well, that's true. I thought you, I was saying, don't jump me until I get the full no, point. Don't, oh, right. No, don't. I don't want to. We're losing control. Uh, negative. All right. Now. Well, I just said midterms. Way before where I was going with it, before I got jumped, is that McConnell will come up with some crazy McConnell doctrine that when you're 27 days and Jupiter is aligned with Saturn and you may or may not, and the polling shows that this, I'm not going to confirm your nominee. That's not, none of that is going to be relevant. This, I'm going to bring optimism, optimism to our legal AFers and our Midas Mighty. This nominee is getting confirmed and everybody knows it from Lindsey Graham to McConnell. So now let's get to the, so that's going to happen. So the confirmation will happen, but the actual seating of that person will be the day after Breyer steps down from the current term. So it won't happen during the term. The confirmation will happen before this term is over. Now, some people said, well, what if it's Kamala Harris? It's not going to be Kamala Harris. Yeah, okay, that theory okay. is not happening. That's a Republican flow to that. Not happening. That's a Republican theory to distract you and I and Democrats from what's at stake. And then people are like, well, what if she can she break her own tie? Yes, she can. But no, that's not going to happen. That there's there's three or four main candidates because he's already in Biden's already announced it's going to be a black woman. We've had black men, Thurgood Marshall first, Clarence Thomas second. We have never in 230 years plus of the U.S. Supreme Court ever had a black woman. It's time. So he's announced it's going to be a black woman, all supremely qualified, all with amazing resumes and pedigrees, none of it affirmative action based. And let's start with the first one that you mentioned on your podcast that you thought it was. And I actually thought it was, too, although I'm now drifting a little bit. Katanji Brown Jackson, 50, 51 years old, a connection to Florida, which you think is my home state, a graduate of Miami Palmetto High School, where Jeff Bezos also went, a clerk for Justice Breyer, important. A lot of times the replacement likes to be a clerk for somebody that, that steps off. A DC, a current, uh, a recent DC circuit or DC appellate court judge put on by Biden. Um, and uh, related by marriage to former Congressman Paul Ryan, of all things, she has been considered to be the leading candidate for this, even though she just got elevated to the appellate court in the District of Columbia, which is the feeder stream to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
doesn't matter that she just got appointed. They can elevate her at any time. And it looks like they're going to do that. That's one. Second one is a very interesting, I think, fascinating candidate is Leandra Kruger on the California State Supreme Court, your home state. She would she was also she's always been a rock star at every level in her career, just as Katanji Brown Jackson has been. She was the first in over 200 years editor in chief of the Yale Law Review. You think about how many people went to Yale Law School. She's the first black person, person of color or black person uh, who to become the editor in chief. She has an interesting background. Her one parent is Jamaican. The other parent is Jewish. And she clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens, also a left left of center justice. She had been the acting solicitor general of the United States under Obama and argued 10 or 12 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. She's young. She's the youngest of the three. She's 45, eminently qualified. And the one that's the little bit of a wild card, and you and I went back and forth a little bit on, uh, on our texts in advance, is Michelle Childs. And Obama, with a link to Obama, she's on the D.C. Uh, court, I'm uh, sorry, she's on the um, the uh, district court for South Carolina, which is uh, uh, Clyburn's state, right? And she was, until two days ago, was going through a confirmation process to be on the D.C. Uh, appellate court along with with Katanji Jackson uh, with Katanji Jackson but her nominee her nomination was pulled by the democratic led senate judiciary committee because it's been announced that she is on the shortlist for being a supreme court justice and they don't want to put her through double confirmation processes if she's going to be put up in 2 weeks to be the nominee to the supreme court let's not put her through a process now uh, uh, of an intermediary court that she's never going to serve on. And the Clyburn connection is really interesting because recall, and as I know, you know, almost better than anybody and your brothers, if it wasn't for South Carolina and Clyburn and the black population and electorate there, there would be no President Biden because he would not have won the primaries if he didn't turn the tide in South Carolina and the vote wasn't delivered by Clyburn and black churches and the black electorate there. So uh, Clyburn is on record as saying not only does it need to be a black woman, he said it needs to be Michelle Childs. What do you think about all that? Well, here's a Jim Clyburn quote, who's also the whip for the Democratic, the majority whips. And he's been that uh, since 2019. Quote, I don't like people telling me how important I am. You got to show me. It's such a <laughs> it's such a classic Clyburn, Clyburn quote. It's such a Clyburn but quote. Clyburn's endorsement is the reason that many credit and rightfully so that Biden won South Carolina and went on to become the president. That's right. So a Jim Clyburn endorsement of uh, this specific judge, um, you know, is meaningful. I mean, the reason that I thought it was going to be Katanji Brown Jackson, she had gone through a confirmation process before, very recently. And because she's gone through that process, it, it she's tested, she's battle tested. It's the same people who are going to be voting on it. And if they vote differently, it'll just show, you know, how partisan and silly it is. But we know that she can get confirmed, um, you know, but then the J. Michelle Childs piece of it 
um, you know, is very, very interesting because of Clyburn and the weight that Clyburn holds. And if Clyburn says, Hey, I need you to do this for me, that could possibly tip the scales she, there. Yeah. She's also the only one to, to, to the extent that this matters to people. And I think if you're looking for diversity, educational diversity, she's also a non Ivy leaguer in the sense that she didn't go to Harvard and Yale, like the other two candidates or really almost well, not everybody on the Supreme Court went to Harvard and Yale. She went to University of South Carolina Law School and got her master's in law from Duke University. So I like her. Nice. Well, we will keep you updated there. But that is big news that Biden is getting that yeah. nomination. We'll talk um, Wednesday about it. We're going to spend the entire half an hour on Wednesday talking about Breyer and the pick. So we covered a lot on this issue of or this edition of Legal AF. I mean, a, a ton of topics um, that we that we had covered. I mean, just thinking about it, we covered the FBI raved on Quare. We talked about Palin's lawsuit. We talked about um, Alabama gerrymandering. We talked about the Matt Getz case. We talked about Pennsylvania courts on, on the on, uh, ruling on the um, uh, no excuse voting. We talked about Stuart Rhodes detention. We talked about Letitia James. We talked about these affirmative action cases. We talked about the death penalty. We talked about Jan sixth updates and we talked about Breyer retiring an action packed legal. You know, a what, you know what I liked about that list? There what? were many, many first and last names in there and you got many of them right. That's I, I always try to get as many right as I can. Special thanks to our sponsors, Blinkist, Super Speciosa, Smith AI, and Athletic Greens. Make sure you support our sponsors. And I think it's always worth mentioning, Popak, that you and I are practicing lawyers. And so, you know, if we if you have a case, you know, we do, you know, bad catastrophic injuries, big contract disputes, big business disputes are the types of cases we handle. If you or someone you know has been injured or they've been, you know, we do sexual harassment cases, sexual assault cases. We represent victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment all the time in civil cases. And so if you have friends or you know anybody, you can reach out to us. You have my email, it's ben at midastouch.com. Ben at MidasTouch.com. You have Popox, mpopoc at zplaw.com. Just reach out to us and we'll look into it or we'll have people at our office look into it and see if there's any way that we could be helpful. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Legal AF, the weekend edition with Ben Micellis and Michael Popock. If it's the weekend, it is Legal AF. Always an honor to be with you. Last words, Popock. I, you made me really excited and happy to know that you may be in New York and that you and I can get together again. And if you do, there will be proof of life photos of you and I once again enjoying each other's company live and in person. Absolutely. And shout out to the Midas Mighty. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>